Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the My Love of Golf podcast. We have an interview today. We have a very special guest joining us, a very special guest who is, I'm going to call him an expert in the rules of many things, the rules of life, the rules of golf, and the rules of financial markets and currency trading and, and all things in that realm of the world, which are quite topical at the moment. So Stuart McPhee joins us. He's a Melbourne-based golf nut, just like all of us. And uh, we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation about Stuart's time in golf so far, things he's got himself into, and also some of his time professionally. It's going to be an interesting chat. Let's bring Stuart in. Stuart McPhee, welcome to the My Love of Golf podcast. How are you? Ross, I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. It is my absolute pleasure to be here and to have this opportunity to speak with you. Thanks very much for having me along. Well, you're my favourite uh, golf golf nut with the uh, the most Scottish name that I know. And uh, <laughs> so it's always a pleasure to have someone with uh, as I prepared. It. Did, it, did, did, did you hear that I'm going to the 150th uh, Open, Stuart? Did you hear that? Wonderful. Yes. I, Fantastic. I may have mentioned that 27,000 times <laughs> yeah. on previous episodes. I'll mention it here again. Hey, Stuart, thanks for joining us because, um, you know, you, you and I know each other a little bit. You know, we've come into each other's contact through – uh, one of your passions, that's the rules of golf uh, through the great man Blakey uh, and the Golf Rules Questions podcast, which you have um, made your way into the world of podcasting as his sometimes part-time, all-the-time co-host now. You, you chuck the other bloke out, so uh, he, he might not come back. Um, well done. So you, you're into that. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. I thought that could be potential awkwardness, you know, and, you know, massive shoes to fill. I don't have the same voice. I don't have the same. I just get on there and try to relax and enjoy it. But oh, geez, I'm glad you brought that up and it no, didn't make no, me no. feel too awkward about it. You've done very well to to bring that up. Thank uh, you. The same voice. <laughs> uh, you definitely have one thing that I never had, and that was a in depth, detailed rules of golf and how to apply that and how to make the game better through everyone understanding the rules of golf. Let's sort of go into that part of you know the world of Stuart McPhee first, because um, there are many many webs. Um, how did you how did you get into the game of golf? You know, because I, if I remember rightly, you know, golf came a little bit later for you. But you know, talk talk us through your golf journey and um, and why the golf rules part of the game is so important to you. And and then we'll go back and sort of work out the before parts after that. Very good, thank you. So I think you know, for if you consider most people, you know, teenage years and they get into adulthood, it might be university, it's work, it's establishing a career, it's finding relationships, it's having a family, it's all that stuff takes up so much people's time in their 20s and 30s. And, you know, golf is not a game that you can get over and done within 30 minutes. You know, it is obviously time consuming. It's not just the four and a bit, you know, hours for a round. It's the bit beforehand. It's the bit afterwards. It's, you know, that obligation to hang around and just have at least one drink with the people you just play with. It's all that. So it's purely time, I think, for so many people, but it's just not something you think about doing on a regular basis in those stages of your life, unless you are incredibly passionate about it. You've been really, really good as a kid or something like that, and you just keep playing. So for me, I was like, I think many people, and that was got into the 40s and going, you know, the few times that I have played, I have really, really enjoyed it. 
And all of a sudden, I'm halfway through my life. And if I don't do this more regularly, it's not going to happen. And this is something I really want to do. And it was, of all things, I was driving home from a Christmas holidays up in Queensland, two days on the road, you're just driving, right? So a lot of things are going through your head. And I just, um, as you're driving along and concentrating, and I just thought, stuff it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go and find a club and joining a club, I think, will then make me feel more committed to that regular game, getting my money's worth. And I did that and I came home and within a few weeks, went around the area, did a few tours and drove into one and go, wow, this is really, really nice. I could see myself playing here, joined up, rest is history. But it was just that stage in my life, if I don't do it now, and, you know, at club level, you know, this at club level, you know, what's the average age of a club member? It's not 25. You know, so I find there's probably a lot of people who continue on in work before they get to that stage in their life where, right, it's time for a bit of golf now and probably well into their 50s, if not later. But for me, it was at that time and I've gone, let's go and join a club. And then all of a sudden, I join a club, but I've never really played before. And the last thing I wanted to do was, and I still had this image in my head of <clears throat> on this club's website, was some social day, corporate day, and here's the first tee, and there's like 50 people watching. And I thought, no. Sorry, I, I'm not going to tee off on that first hole with 50 people watching me. That's not what I want to do. I can't do that. I'm sorry. So I decided then, well, I'll just go out, no competition play. I'll just go out and hit. I'll just go on my own time. And I would go out several times a week, no competition. I didn't know any other members, but I just wanted to get out. You know, I'm halfway down the fairway and I dropped three balls and I hit them all to the green. And then I'll put them all, all three out. And then I'll tee off, you know, with two balls the next hole and play three. And I did that for a long time just to get a little bit of confidence before I stepped on that first tee. I think the problem with doing that is when I actually first then started playing golf, I suffered from stage fright. I was so comfortable with no one watching me. And all of a sudden, just three people watching me just completely changed my mindset, and I really struggled that first bit. But I'll just quickly tell a story, if I may, about how I actually then eventually got into competition, regular competition play, was at this club struggling with a lot of issues, ownership and management and the like. And here I'm a guy with a lot of time on my hands and I've always been a person who wants to help. And I got myself onto the committee and would you believe no one else on the committee knew me, but it just happened to be someone was going for the captain's spot. So that left a vacancy. I put in a nomination before you know it, I'm on the committee and no one knew me. And uh, the president rings me and goes, welcome. Um, tell me a bit about yourself. Um, you're on my committee now. Um, listen, I noticed you didn't have a handicap. I said, there's your first job. I said, you must, he said, you must get a handicap. You plus must play member competitions. I go, you must get around and meet the members. I go, okay, you're the boss. Like, you know what's going on. So I did that. And my very first round, I had it with him. And I reckon I was lucky to get under 120 strokes. You know, I was just so nervous playing with this president and playing with other people and actually having to score and write down with the pencil, write the number down for each hole. And, oh, my heavens, <laughs> it was just awful. But I got onto the committee, sorry, just quick, got onto the committee, didn't know anybody, didn't have a handicap, and he goes, you need a handicap, you need to play with members. Um, okay, I'll do that. It's such a inverse way to start your time on a committee of a golf club is to join a committee without a handicap uh, when you're, just started playing. I, I I don't know if I've ever heard that. You know, like it's usually, you know, you've been playing golf for. Well, you look at the makeup of committees. It's changing now. I think committees are, you know, golf clubs are, you know, in this evolutionary stage that the game's in. The the, the diversity in in committees is certainly um, well and truly established, and the need for that, and rightly so. 
Um, so committees are changing, but you, you know, in history gone by, you know, you'd say it'd just be older gentlemen usually. Sometimes, you know, good committees that have a diverse range of women and, and younger members. But you know, older guys that have been playing the game for forty years and just want to really make sure that the you know everyone counts all the shots and no one plays more than four hours and don't fill you yeah. if you fill your divots, you're going to get a letter. Um, I got yeah. I got one more story if I may about that. Sorry yeah. that I yeah. I must share is that one of the first few days of me now being on the committee still don't have my handicap and the captain said, look, we normally play on Wednesdays. Come in and just I'll introduce you to a few people. I go, okay, yeah, I need to do that. I'm going to be on the committee. And he's got the mic in the members' lounge. There's 50 people there. He says, oh, and gentlemen, just um, here's Stuart. He's actually just joined the committee. Um, please make him feel welcome, you know, that sort of stuff. And one guy yells out, he doesn't even have a handicap. <laughs> and, <laughs> and people just burst out laughing. Some even almost fell off their chair. And all of a sudden I've shrunk by about six inches. Um, thinking, okay, well, I'll get to that. I'll fix that. But, oh, geez, I was a laughing stop for at least five minutes. That, that, you know, he's on the members' committee and doesn't even have a head. <laughs> that's, that's just that's terrible. That's, that's, you know, as I said, you know, I can only hope that golf clubs are in this evolutionary stage at golf center. And, I, and as you know, what I do, you know, I see all of the new people and I talk to and offer counsel about getting into golf, joining clubs, what that looks like getting handicapped how do we do that what are the ways and the avenues to get a handicap and you know how often how do i need to do i need to do this that, that I, you know part of my role in what i do is is the people that i come across in the store is to educate them on that if if the opportunity arises if they're willing to to listen um I'm, you I'm, know I'm, I'm proud to say that four years later i was the captain yeah. at the club exactly so well, that's... i was able to overcome that small hurdle to start with and obviously did enough good to be elected as captain four years later and so, you know, that's one part of the you know, introduction to Stuart McPhee, but there's a whole breadth and depth of experience before that. Um, you know, I introduced you as an expert in the markets, currency, trading. Uh, that's one part of your career. What about before that? <laughs> so, and we will talk about the rules. So, before that, yeah, we'll, was, go back, we'll go back. To, we'll come back to the rules. Sure. But, you know, this is about setting the scene. Well, how did you learn about discipline and rules? Absolutely. Yeah. No, they are very much uh, certainly very connected. So, before that, and straight out of school, I went to the Royal Military College, Duntroon, and uh, graduated as one of the youngest ever graduates in its entire hundred plus year history. So, that then led me on to being full-time commission officer in the Australian Army, full-time. So, and one of the things about Duntroon is whether you like it or not, it's an institution and they break you down. Uh, they retrain you. Whether I mean, that's just part of the program. They break you down, who you are, build you back up into the person they want you to be. And it's an incredibly effective, time-tested, you know, all the way back to Sandhurst in the UK and brought over to Australia, been going on for a long time. So it's a very good program and it works very well, builds you up to the person you want to be. And, of course, a very important part of that is having that right moral compass and ethics and principles, but, of course, discipline and and that military life, whether you like it or not, you certainly need to be disciplined, that's for sure. Um, can I ask a question about that, about that process? Because, you know, the little person that sits at the back of here thinking about questions to ask, you know, I can only think that if I'm thinking about it here, then the people listening have probably got the same question, you know, and in a glorified way, you know, Ant Middleton and um, all of those guys for SAS and that sort of thing. You know, I've read most of Ant's books and his colleagues that were in 
and British SAS and SBS. I've read into their lives and I found it, you know, very interesting. What was the breaking down part like? You know, this, when you say break down, it's easy to go, they break it down, they build you back up and you're fixed. What, what, what does that breaking down mean? Um, it means that here I am a civilian. I've actually just finished year 12 at school. I'm a kid, you know. I've turned 18, but I really am a kid. And I've gone into this system where everything is done to the second. You all of a sudden just have to do so many things throughout the course of the day and be so organised that you're just not used to it. And then, of course, when you fail to meet that standard a 100 times during the day, there is someone there making it quite clear to you that you're not meeting the standard. Um, and it can be yelling, it can be just being someone very close, talking very close to you, just telling you everything you're doing wrong. And, you know, I think in the first five weeks, if it's still like this, it's still the same. The first five weeks, you're not allowed to quit, right? I mean, because you, you would, many people would. Um, you're just not allowed to. Um, it's just that constant attention, constant, you need to do this. Why aren't you here? You haven't done this yet. And then, and then there's consequences for that. Um, and those consequences because can just build to be overwhelming. That's a very simplified way of talking about being broken down, but it is just being completely stripped of what you hold to be true and the way you organise your life and the way you have breakfast and lunch. Well, that's bad luck. We don't care. This is how you're going to be doing it. Um, you line up like this. You don't say anything or you look this way or you do this before you do that. And as soon as you've done that, you do this. It's just a 100 things during the day that must be done and there's consequences if you don't do them. And there's that constant scrutiny, someone watching you. I mean, you're the new people in. So all the people that are there six, 12 months, they've been all through this as well. And they're the ones now enforcing all that and breaking these people down. And to say about how it had an impact on me, you know, I was just turned 18. I've never cried more in my life put together than I did in those five weeks. You know, just shaking my head, going, what have I just got myself into? I've just been completely... Yeah, just hit like a, literally almost like a ton of bricks, just being completely belted around from pillar to post. And, you know, and then eventually, slowly but surely, you get a feel for, okay, I see I'm a bit more organised now. And what you probably would have read in those books is the bond. Mm. It's the camaraderie. And when you go through adversity and hardship, geez, you rely on other people. I mean, individuals don't survive in the military. It's that simple. And you've almost got no choice, you know, people of all sorts of personalities, you bond together like you probably don't see anywhere else, anywhere in the world than you do in the military, is that camaraderie because you need each other. Um, you really need to rely on each other. And then, you know, post that five weeks, obviously past that part of the course and then move through, you know, whatever other aspect of training that the officer um, training courses give you. Deployment and, and then going into active service, what, what did that look like? Um, I was probably avoided a bit of that. Um, I was sort of too late for initial Gulf War 1990 because I was at Duntrin. And then when I got out, Australia really started to ramp up. You know, then was I got out pre-9-11. So, you know, 9-11 and everyone in Australia is doing stuff. So I was in the period of time of actually not a lot. I mean, I was very fortunate to be selected um, as an exchange instructor, and I went over to the United States for two years as an instructor for U.S. Army um, young officers, and I would run them through classes and the like. I did that for two years. Wonderful. Probably the best two years of my military experience. But apart from that, I did a few overseas things, but not a lot and nothing for real. Yeah. It was just a lot of preparation, which is what militaries do. They prepare. When and they're an insurance policy. You, you hope you don't need to use them. You've got to have them. Yeah. 
Where did you go in the States? Where was that uh, to? A not so <laughs> well-known place called El Paso, Texas, right on the Mexican border. Every morning driving to work, the I-10, the Interstate 10, um, I'd be driving along and Mexico was like just there, like literally 20 metres away. There was the Rio Grande cyclone fence and then a third world country almost um, right there, like that close. I could throw a cricket ball into Mexico. It was that close. So back then, you know, golf wasn't a thing for you, was it? No, that we, I, we've ascertained that. Okay, so then when, and we'll loop back to the rules of golf, but then when did this career as in the world of investing and, and trading, when did when did that become a thing? Yeah, so around mid, you know, so I'm now married and no children and my wife and I go, you know, I've actually put a bit of money aside as savings. What are we going to do with it? Went and saw a financial planner in a bank. Financial planner said, oh, you're young. Um got plenty of time ahead of you. you. You can afford to take a lot of risk. I think you should put some money in shares. And we're going, oh, yeah, I, I think I've heard of them. I, I, I've got a rough idea of what shares are. Yeah, yeah, I think you should buy shares, you know, ride the market up and down, blah, blah, blah. You've got plenty of time ahead of you. And go, okay, well, what shares do we buy? Because there's 2,000 stocks on the ASX, plus or minus. Well, you can't buy all 2,000. So that really then was the, the, the genesis of me going, wow, there's a lot more to this than just buying some Telstra shares. Even though, sorry, Telstra didn't exist at the time, but, you know, buying shares in well-known companies. You, you can't buy all 2,000. How on earth do people choose which ones to buy? How do they do that? So that just whetted my appetite to, there's a lot to learn about this. And, you know, as soon as your money is involved, you take a lot of interest. Just natural human response. So, and that was me. So all of a sudden, my wife and I wrote a few checks and set up a broker account, and bought some shares. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm tracking the price of those shares now. And then I start to think, you know, why did they go down twelve cents today? Why does that happen? Like, what did it all of a sudden devalue? You know, by twelve cents per share? Is that what the company's now? So that went to my appetite even further about how does this all work? That's the beginning of a 25-year-plus year history of being involved in the markets and knowing as much as I know, but that was the beginning of it all was just an interest and then going, you know, how do these share prices move and why are they moving all the time? You know? So was that the career straight out of the military? It was. So yeah. at the time it was a hobby, it was yeah. a passion. I got really interested in before, even while I was in the military, I spent a lot of money on courses and when we're talking about now several years now of, a lot of money on courses. We moved to US at the time and all of a sudden I've now got cable television and I used to have five channels, now I've got 85 and several of them were CNBCs and the Bloombergs and the CNN money at the time and I'm going, wow, this yeah. is amazing. All these guys 24 hours a day talking about stuff and there's stuff going down the bottom of the screen with all the price. I'm going, oh, my God, there's so much to learn. So now I'm really, really getting interested and then, of course, of course, but we got back from there and moved back uh, to Australia. We're going, <clears throat> time to settle, time to buy a house, have some children. Military, it's really, you move a lot. They are getting better at it because they realise families want stability. For children, for them, school, friends, for the spouses to have jobs and friends and the like. So, But at the time, was every two years, you were going somewhere different. <clears throat> that was just so normal and we didn't want that. And I was doing well in my career. I was reporting well. I was going to get promoted 12 months later. Um, and we just said, no, let's just buy a house, stable, have children, start a new life, next stage. And so I thought, what do I do? And I, with this passion, had really grown to really quite a passion. And I just got a job as a, as a teacher, as a trainer in this 
topic of mine that I'd really developed a passion and really taken to, and that was 20-plus years ago. But that's how the transition was made um, some time ago to move into this new field. I'm not sure if I mentioned it actually in the introduction, which uh, I should have, but uh, a best-selling author. So people who write books and, and reading is not a skill that I ever fully developed as a, as a kid growing up in the Hunter Valley, um, unfortunately. Uh, my wife now is a prolific reader and I, I would admire her nightly, daily and the, the volume of books. My mum was a prolific reader. My dad's a prolific reader. I'm not a prolific reader, but I've become a, a very good listener. Um, I think this world of podcasting has sort of opened up my ears to, to listen to things and spending a lot of time in the car. Um, you know, obviously, once that moment dawned, I realised I'd missed opportunities to learn a lot of stuff by not being not using that time, that two to four hours in the car a day productively, and I started listening and reading books you know, that way. You, know, you wrote a book, and in my journey of learning the value of reading books or listening to books. Mm-hmm. I really come to have a respect for people who are able to write them. Um, you know, and then getting to know you and, you know, you sent me a book, I've got an autographed copy. Um, uh, uh, just blew me away that, uh, you know, here's this golf rules expert and that's, you know, there's this whole other side. And writing a book, how do you write a book? <laughs> so I'll just make a couple of comments about what you just said. <clears throat> um and that is, you talk about your wife and prolific reader. I've got three daughters. My first and third are voracious readers. And last year they read like something like 60-something and 70-something books last year. And some of those were like six to 900 pages. Mm. So the time spent just reading, and I am not, and they think it's hilarious that the only books that I've read are self-improvement, financial. They're the books that I've read. I don't sit down and read. Jane Austen or whatever some author is, um, they think it's hilarious that someone who doesn't read as much as I, uh, they that I've actually written a book. Mm. And did I write the book? It was some other people I knew as part of a network or group, traders group we used to get, knew the publisher, they were looking for a, a new series. You'll not see the title is you know, in a nutshell. They wanted to do a whole range of books about this in a nutshell, this in a nutshell, this in a nutshell. And they said, well, this guy may be able to do something like that. And they made the connection, hey, would you like to write a book? I go, actually, that would be really cool. Like, yeah, I, th- I think I would really like to. To be known as an author, how cool would that be? And there's been a lot of benefits for that. And, and all of a sudden the conversation started and wasn't doing a lot of other things. We just had our first child and had a lot of time. I was spending a lot of time at home because I wanted to be there for that. And it was just, yeah, okay, well, look, right what you think would give us an outline and write the first two chapters. And then we'll, you know, without making any commitments, we'll see where we go from there. So I did that. I went home and, you know, on the typewriter and on the keyboard and wrote the outline of what I thought a good book would be based on this topic and wrote the first two chapters. And sure enough, submitted to this end and, oh, no way, you know, they're going to... You know, typical response of, you know, they'll, they'll hate it or think what a, how embarrassing or whatever it might be. I think they sent it around to a few other people. So is this on the mark? You know, is this okay? And they've gone, yeah, then, yeah it's certainly in the, heading in the right direction. They've come back, okay, contract, let's do this. We'll give you your 25 cents a book or whatever it is. That's not quite that, but it's not a lot. And, you know, because they absorb all the risk by doing the printing and the like. And sure enough, over the next month or so, I just wrote. That's all I did all day. It was just all this stuff in my head. I just got it out into various Word documents, submitted it all in. They sent it around again a few more times, came back the first, back to me in a big padded envelope, back to my home. Every page almost just had massive red pen, you know, 
just get rid of this section. Get nah, this is a waffle. You know, I'm going. Oh, that's my fault. I really want to do it. Do I do yeah. want to? Do, it's just demoralising. I felt like I'd poured everything out, yeah. real from the heart, from the head, obviously, but from the heart, really poured it out. And they just come back with this. Nah, this. I mean, the whole page is just no nah, waffle. I will say though that sure enough, so the process continued, got published. Um, I'm now an author and sells well. And then I think it was like three years later, they said, we don't have you, actually love you to update. Would you be interested in doing an update? We'll do a second edition. I say, sure, you know, it's selling really well and the like. And would you believe that almost everything that they crossed out with red pen in the first edition, I actually put back in the second edition. And now I'm an established author. Now they're going, okay, people are liking this, they're buying the book. They actually just either consciously or not, it actually all made it through. Yeah. And all the stuff that was crossed out from the first actually made its way into the second edition and got published in the second edition. I thought that was a bit of a coup, but I was able to get it all back in there because I really wanted it in there. And sure enough, that was in there for the second edition. So, um, so, and I should just add, sorry, I'll just if I may, Ross, sorry, yeah. I, I do a lot of public speaking. I've travelled the world very, very, very lucky to have done that. And one of the icebreakers, if I feel the time is right and there's a bit of ice that really needs to be broken with an audience, especially a smaller one, and maybe my book's here or something, I'll say, don't tell the publisher this. But when the first edition came out, my mum bought about four or 5,000 copies of it. <laughs> and the publisher, and of course, they all start laughing. Oh, the publisher thought it was selling really well, so they did a second edition, but my mum didn't buy that many. But um, <laughs> it's, someone bought it, so that's good. It's like that my dad's the only, only listener to the podcast, so that's, that gets everyone a fair bit too. Uh, well, it's now, at least it's three people now. I know it's my dad, Rocket's mum, and, uh, and Mike, Very good. Mike's dad. Um, Very good. So you're able to turn that passion from educating people, helping people, turn that into a book, which then even further accelerated your ability to influence and help people. You know, there are going to be people that listen to this, hopefully, that you know, have, have seen whatever headline we put on it and, you know, we put trading there and people go, oh, golf trading. Oh, I'm into that because I'm, I'm mm. trading and, 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 and they're going to know, you know, have their own knowledge. But there's going to be a lot of people, especially in this current economic climate and times where there's some level of real or perceived uncertainty. It depends if you listen to the media or you actually know what's going on. I don't know. You can help us understand that. That are going to be, oh, I'm interested in this, but I don't know. I mean, you know, here's an area that I need to be more cognizant of for my own, you know, financial health and well-being, um, and I'd really like to get some more skill in trading. How do I go about that? Um, and what are some of the rules, the do's, the don'ts? You know, like maybe there's a couple of levels. There's the absolute newbie, and then there's other people that are sort of playing around the periphery of newbie. I don't know. You, you're the expert, but I guess there's some people that are going to want to know about how do we get into it. What should I do? What should I not do? And and okay. I'll preface this by this doesn't constitute financial advice. You know, we're not giving financial advice. Seek your own financial advice, your own accounting, your own brokery. Do all of that. It's just you and I catching up, having a chat. That disclaimer is almost word for word. Thank you, Ross, for Thank putting you. that in there as well. <laughs> the um, I think the most basic thing I can say is people who want to get involved in the markets and do so without a plan are simply kidding themselves. Right. And I often use that cliche of, you know, a fail to plan, plan to fail. Right. So, you know, if you put a plan in place, then you are absolutely destined to make some incredible screw up, you know, stuff ups and really do yourself a disservice. So having that plan in place. But and the other thing is just there's a few other major issues. One is managing managing a risk. 
is incredibly important. It's not something that people think about. It's not obvious. You know, one of the reasons why well, probably the primary motivation for everyone getting into the market is to, would you believe it, make money. And that's another line I use to break the ice, <clears throat> you know, with a with an audience of it's nothing to be ashamed of. You know, you're surrounded by people who want to make money. You know, that's just the, our, our motivation to doing this. And it's our focus on that making your money, which actually has us making some really, really stupid decisions in the market. I mean, most of the things we have to do are counterintuitive. Hmm. They make no sense whatsoever. Uh, that's why without a plan, without that discipline, without knowing what you're doing, you'll just go in there and just figuratively speaking, blow yourself up. Probably why, probably, um, probably why you like <clears> golf. <throat> a, lot about, a, lot of, a lot about golf is about having a plan, but everything that you end up doing is counterintuitive. You know, the process swing this way and you're feeling like I should swing this way. Uh, anyway, sorry, I interrupt. <laughs> yeah, so again, it's one of those things I wish I knew day one was most of the things you have to do are counterintuitive. But we then come from our walk of life, our profession, whatever we do in the world, our you know our skill, our training, our experience, and we come into here and thinking, I'm a confident person. Like I've done well in this career, I'm doing well. Why wouldn't that confidence and experience translate into this new endeavor, this industry, the market? And it doesn't. And then that frustrates people. And then they're blind to it, thinking, no, 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 I'm better than this. I'm pretty confident in what I do. I'm very used to getting my way, being in control, having great influence. And in the market, the market couldn't care less. Well, it couldn't care less who you are. Hmm. And you have next to no control, no influence, um, and you're going to be proven wrong often. You know, And we've come from a walk of life where maybe we're not proven wrong that often at all. And the simple analogy I use is of a pilot. You'd like to think pilots get most of their landings correct, right? And yet... You know, yet they come into this environment where they're proven wrong all the time. So that's a very humbling experience and people are not very comfortable. A lot of people are not comfortable with being humbled and being proven wrong and realising they're not as good as they thought. And I think one of the things that sums it up for me is, I mean, and the, and the, how I can relate to all the people I talk to all around the world and audiences is the fact that I have been on the same journey that they're on, exactly the same path. I came in having no idea. No idea what I was doing, but it's the same path. I just like to think I'm a little bit further along the path and I've stuck with it. And a lot of other people leave the keys and the ignition and the engine running and walk away and never come back. And that's totally understandable. So, you know, a lot of the things we have to do are counterintuitive. Discipline is an incredibly important part of what we do because emotions can take over a lot really easily. We are emotional beings. They're very much a part of our makeup and emotions have little place when it comes to uh, trading financial markets. So the discipline, the emotion, the counterintuitive, having a plan, managing risk, and what we're seeing right now is an increase in volatility. So volatility is how much something tends to move. And we're seeing a lot of increase in volatility. Volatility is directly related to risk. And for a lot of people, and you know, someone like me who's well-prepared and has been doing this for a long time and have systems and rules in place, one of the things I track is volatility. And if it moves beyond my threshold, I stop doing stuff. Why? Because the market's getting a bit silly. And any major fall, and I'm not saying right now is a major fall or going to be, but anything like the global financial crisis or anything else, volatility is shot through the roof. And here I am just having a very simple tool or rule that I use that when it exceeds a certain threshold, I I'm, I sit out. I don't get involved at all. And all of a sudden, all my account's in cash and I'm protected and I'm not losing any money. And it's just simple little things like that. You know, so when people need to just be prepared and plan and have rules in place, manage your risk, but more so prepare yourself. 
and prepare yourself mentally for the rigors of the fact that markets do go up and they go down and they go up really quickly and go down quickly and do all those sorts of things that no one has any idea what's about to happen. Is there a lot of pattern, you know, pattern behaviour? I'm, I'm reading a book, um, uh, Thou Shall Prosper. It's written by a rabbi, actually. Um, and he, they, I mean, the part where they talk about patterns to life um, and that the Jewish faith, you know, follow. And, you know... Financial markets seem to be pattern oriented. Is that is that true? Hundred percent, absolutely. Yeah. So, the way price, how prices move, is through demand and supply. And we could argue or discuss for a long time why there's particular levels of demand and supply in a certain stock or a currency pair or whatever it might be. But it's demand and supply, and people create that demand and supply. People like you and I, people with larger accounts, smaller accounts, and what happens is. People tend to respond the same way when confronted with the same situation. So if price does X and then followed up by Y, we can assign a probability. Well, we've seen this 5,000 times before and there's a reasonable chance, 72% chance that price will then do this. Well, that's what we want as traders. We want probability. There's no such thing as certainty. We want probability. And if we can get probability on something happening, we can speculate on that probability and we do that by taking a trade. As long as we manage risk well, um, that's what... So coming back to the behaviour, so chart patterns, so patterns in prices happen all the time and that's what a lot of people form their rules on is that we know that when we see this do this and then the price does that and it hits that level and comes back, we know this is more likely to happen than not. Well, that's what traders do is they watch all of this. And often this analysis is more the study of mass psychology than it is studying financial markets. It's actually studying the way people behave, mm. which is extraordinary. And people have written about this for decades. You know, it's a well-covered topic. But that's what people like myself do, and it's certainly, no, certainly not perfect. And, in fact, it's far from it. But it's all about just giving ourselves an edge and giving ourselves a chance of, you know, doing this well. And that takes a lot of preparation. It, it just does. And if I can just finish on this one point, if I may, you know, I drive past Moorabbin Airport, and if I say, yeah, I wouldn't mind being a pilot, hang on a second, well, that's not easy. I would have to, I don't know exactly, but I know theory, hours, I've got some idea of the pathway. How about if I want to do this? Oh, yeah, but you'd have to go university, four-year, blah, blah, blah. How about I become a trader? Well, I'd have to, oh, no idea. Where's the pathway? Hmm. I don't know. Can't be that difficult. As long as I'm 18, I can set up an account. Can't be that difficult. Let's go. There's no obvious pathway. There's no obvious, well, I'd have to do this and then I'd have to do this and I'd have to learn how to. No, there's nothing obvious. Um, No obvious pathway. And I think that's why people think it's easy money. And I think it's the hardest easy money there is. Mm. In fact, I know it is, you know. And that's how I felt. Can't be that difficult. You only got to buy and sell. That's it. Would you? Can't be that difficult. Would you recommend. You know, a young person, you know, say you're a young person like, you know, my son's 22, he's, you know, doing his, playing, finding his way in the trade uh, and he's, you know, if he wants to save some money and develop a, w- would you say that for young people they should look at learning the business of, or not the business, learning the art of training, the, the skill of trading, sorry? Well, I think, yeah, I think learning any skill is good for you, you know, just learning a whole new range of skills and I think is there's nothing negative about that. And I think if someone is going to be investing, 
and someone like that who has potentially 40, 50, would you believe 60 years ahead of them of being involved and having money at risk, whether it be in a house, multiple houses, shares, whatever it might be, at risk. I think there's some value into understanding managing risk and return and all those basic sort of economic terms. And I think the other thing that someone like your son, he's got the rest of his life ahead of him. So he can afford to take that risk hmm. and he can learn, he can afford that time of trial and error. And, you know, if someone said, oh, I'm 67, I've just retired, um, I've got my superannuation fund, I'd like to start trading it. I'm going, hmm. you know, without giving advice, I'm not really sure that's probably the ideal situation. Or I prefer him saying, you know, I've got 3.7 million in my super. I've got this spare 50 I want to have a play, I want to have a play around with and have a bit of fun with. That's when I'm going to go, great, knock hmm. yourself out, you know, but... So far as a 22-year-old with the rest of time ahead, all that earning capacity to come, you know, the amount of risk that they can take compared to that 67 who's just retired, very, very different. So, yeah, knowing it's great, you know. Knowing, knowing so that caters for, you know, any potentially young young ones that uh, listen. What about some of the oldies like, you know, myself and, you know, maybe Magic Mike's age or, or Rocket's age, you know, 40? <clears throat> Are they still in a position where, you know, risk is okay? Yeah, Definitely. Fun. So, yeah. So, you know, having done this as long as I have and travelled as much as I have and spoken to audiences of 10 to 510 and everything in between, two things I'll say. Number one, 80% to 80% plus of the people I talk to are men. And I would think 50 to 60% of those, maybe more, are 40 years of age or older. Mm. And what you'll find is it's the had my career, sold my business, easing my way out of my business, all my career, I now have more time, I'm going to start playing golf. I've got more assets at my disposal to play with. I don't have a savings account with $780 anymore. I've actually now got a significantly greater sum of money to, you know, to invest and do something with. So it just lends itself well to that sort of stages of people's life where they get more involved in, yeah, I'm actually now going to start taking a more active role in my retirement, my superannuation fund. I've had my own super fund for 20 years, um, you know, and, you know, I said that I'm obviously young, you know, early on. But it's only given the fact that I was interested in this industry and knew I could do better than paying money management fees to another fund. But, yeah, you'll see a lot of people, most are male and most of that 40 to 50, if not older, and it's now an interest. They have more time. Um, it's something to keep them mentally, you know, something to – during the next stage of their life, yes, to answer that question, but yes, definitely, yeah. Now, you've travelled extensively uh, training and helping people understand the skill that you uh, practice. Yeah, you would have seen and met some very successful people along the way. I think your book even talks to and you, you recount some case studies about people that you have had the experience and the pleasure of working with and learning from. What are What are some of the behavioural traits that you've glean out of these successful people that you have had the chance to spend some time around and talk to? That's a great question, Ross. Um, I think one is discipline. So they know that they don't, you know, they know they haven't reached a level where they are just supremely confident and everything's just going to work for them. So there's that sense of that little bit, little bit of um, humility and the fact that I still haven't mastered it, and but I'm I'm good at what I do, well prepared, very humble. You know, I guess 
someone who's been doing this as long as I have and longer, to get proven wrong all the time on a regular basis, that takes a bit of humility. Mm. And I get proven wrong all the time. Not every trade, but on a regular basis, routinely. And you've got to accept that and deal with it. So there's that sense of humility, clearly very disciplined, very methodical, very structured, very organised, very rules-based, systems-based, very very methodical about the way they go about things. And I think one of the things is trading is a microcosm of your life. You don't go, oh, I need to trade for the next 30 minutes. Let me become a different person. You know, I'll just flick a switch here and I'll become a trader hmm. and really disciplined and, you know, very structured and organised and methodical. And then I'll go back and have that, all the stuff going on, in all the dramas going on in my life and all the emotional baggage. You know, it's we're not that good. We're not good enough to be able to do that. So you just find people who are just, just disciplined and structured and planned and that's because that's what's, that's what is required of you to do this well. And, you know, you can't do it well without a plan and getting to that plan takes a lot of effort. So there's a sense of yeah, humility to be proven wrong a lot. And anyway, just discipline is probably, I'll say that again, discipline. Now, how do you get a book trading in a nutshell? Where can you buy them from? There it is there on the video. If you watch the video on YouTube, um, thanks for subscribing to the YouTube channel too, by the way, Stuart. Uh, unfortunately, you didn't, <laughs> unfortunately, you didn't win the cheese. Uh, that was another one of our listeners that won the uh, Mike Caridi's cheese. Um, <laughs> but maybe we'll win the cheese in the future. How do you get a book, Trading in a Nutshell, the uh, 10th anniversary? Thank you. I, I do sell it on my website, um, as in just get in contact with me there. And I've, I always have four or five in my office just sitting over in a cupboard right there. Um, you've actually got – I don't have one handy, but you've got one. Um, through my website, I wouldn't say all good – bookstores because it's probably just moved on from you know that last edition came out a few years ago now so it's not the most recent sitting right at the front yeah you know, my mum used to always go and look for it and <laughs> if it was sitting spine out she'd pick it out and actually put it on the top at eye level facing out all the time which is I very love nice it. Remember? I love it. <laughs> as parents would yeah. um i know it's available through amazon and a few other sites um if you get it through me i'll you know i'll make a few bucks and i'll personally sign it for you and I'll write probably what I wrote in the front cover of your book when I sign it. So you get a signed copy if you get it through me. But It um, said, uh, stop being a slack ass and buddy, get your shit together. I didn't think you'd read that out. Ross. No, I didn't. I didn't no, read no, I didn't say that at all. <laughs> didn't say that. But uh, that's me reflect, self-reflecting and probably not being disciplined uh, the way you just described people that should be disciplined if they want to practice uh, great training skills. Um, let's... Let's go back to golf. And if anyone's got any questions for Stuart, I'm sure, you know, as I've always found, you know, you're very, very accommodating. I'm sure that, uh, you know, you'd answer any questions if anyone wanted to uh, reach out and ask you a question about how to get the book or whatever. Um, yeah, definitely. Thank you. I should just say I, I spend a lot of my time every day responding to emails. Hmm. Um, it's something I enjoy. Yep. Um, but I never not reply to an email. And just to let's go back to the golf part of it and you know we we opened up by talking about how you dethroned me as the uh, co-host of uh, the golf rules questions podcast um but really you know you came into blakey's life there very much the same way you know you reached out you made an offer i have uh an interest in the rules of golf and i have some time and whatever it looks like i'd love to be able to help and you know, i remember when blakey got that and we, we were talking about it and you know um 
it was it was sort of like this angel, you know, like who who does this? Like where did these people come from? And it wasn't bizarre, like your request was genuine, but it was just us sitting here thinking, hang on, this is exactly you need people like this, uh, David. And it was it was great. And you've you know you and he have formed a great relationship where now you can you know help him co-host uh, Australia's most or the world's most successful golf rules questions podcast. Um, so this discipline, this you know, quest for learning and quest for knowledge and, and quest to be you know, proficient and excel at what you do. I can only imagine that that then took you from being the nervous wreck playing with the, the president on a Wednesday comp after being introduced as the new committee member who didn't have a handicap. Um, I can only ima- imagine that it plied you straight into wanting to be very, very expert in the rules of the game and how to operate within the, the framework that exists. Is that sort of true? Yeah, so... So what happened was I started playing member comps and I realised how little members knew about the rules very, very quickly. And I knew, having just watched it on TV, I knew you could use a T when you start a hole. I knew that on the green you'd put a marker down and you could lift that and you could clean it. I didn't know much else so far as the rules were concerned. And I got told very quickly about, oh, no, no, you can't do that. Or, and I, you know, make sure you do that or... You know, maybe there was a preferred lies and I just used my club and I sort of just moved it over a little. Oh, no, it's probably not a good look. You should, anyway, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, no problem. I'm learning as I go along. And I remember, you know, someone said, I was about to, you know, pull one left, might have gone out of bounds. I said, oh, guys, I'll just hit another. And this guy plays off 30 plus. Lovely guy. I just said, well, are you playing a provisional? I said, yeah, I just said that. I'm going to play. No, 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 no. He said, use the word provisional. So I'm learning all this stuff, mm. right? I go, good, good idea. Thank you. Well, very soon, I am in a situation, I can't remember what it was, and I'm going, guys, what do I do here? Can I take relief or can I, et cetera, you know, and they're all just looking at each other and I get three different answers. But the other three guys gave me a different answer. You know, yes, you can, no, you can't, or I'm not sure, whatever it might have been. I'm going, you guys have been doing this a lot longer than I have. You, you guys play regularly twice a week and you don't know. And I didn't know what to do. And, and it was almost like who sounded the most confident? Well, that second guy, he definitely, he seemed like he was pretty sure. Well, I'll do what he just said. <laughs> he sound, it's like he sounded the loudest and the most sure of that was the rule. Well, this kept happening. Now, all of a sudden, I've got interest in there, there must be a better way. There must be a better way of, is this happening all the time, all, all across Clubland of, on a regular basis, what do I do, guys? Yeah, I don't know, just, just mark it, just move it, just clean it, just whatever, you know. And, you know, it's all about this, well, we're in competition. You Everyone's at the expectation where everyone else is doing the right thing. So this then start my, sparked my interest of asking around, oh, he, he knows the rules pretty well and I'm starting to get answers from him. They're not trained. They just are pretty reasonable with the rules. And all of a sudden I realised there was a guy at my club <clears throat> who was, yeah, level two qualified and state-level referee and actually knew the rules properly. Well, all of a sudden I almost became, you know, really good friends with him because I now wanted to know, hey, this happened today and he probably got very annoyed because I just kept asking him questions. I didn't know the rule book. I didn't know what rule numbers were. And I just thought, excuse me, there was this need for people. Got, I can't believe that people know the rules this poorly and yet they're, and they're okay with it. And they're okay with it. And they just play every week. And they're in a field of 120 or 220 and... There's this expectation that everyone's doing the right thing and they're okay with it. And I thought, no, I'm not okay with it. I think we need to be better at this. So I really then, that was it. That was the passion. That was the start of it all was, wow, I'd really, there's there's some, seems to be this, 
We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of members here, and one knows the rules. Surely we can have more than that. So I'm like, well, I'm now going to, this is something that this resonates with me. You know, my military life is very rules-based. My professional life is very rules-based. Rules, I don't know, just my personality. I like rules. Have you ever had a Barney with someone about the rules? Yeah, I'm sure I have. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I am a lot more confident. I mean, I know the rules now much better than what I did 12 months ago and 12 months before that, and certainly significantly better than before I did the Level 2 course. Um, early on, it was a bit of a Barney because neither of us were really that sure. I just think I knew the what the rule probably was, but without knowing for sure. So I probably got into a few. I mean, I'm, that's not my personality to start throwing clubs at each other and everything, but um but there's yeah, certainly some uh, some discussion about things and i remember a club captain in fact standing on the tee physically stopping me hitting a provisional ball and I, that was probably the most heated i got on a golf course was <clears throat> he said no you can't hit a provisional i said and i basically just said whether i was right or wrong i just said it's my ball it's my choice what i do with it he wasn't my marker, but even if he was, if you have an issue, report me to the committee and we'll work it out. But it's my ball. It's my right to do with whatever I damn well please. That's how I saw it. Um, you're not a referee. Um, my marker isn't a referee. So you know, what, they're just what, another player. What, you was know. The, what was the scenario that led to that? I don't think I was having a good day, mind you. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it was just, you know, pulled it left, probably was in the penalty area, but not really sure. And I just said, it was like, look, I'll just play provisional because I'm really not sure where it went and where it was going to end up. <clears throat> I probably was in the wrong, probably on reflection, but I was just in a bad mood and just. And then, but when he said, "Oh no," I, and then that's when I thought, forget about the rule. This is now more of a principle of it's my ball. I'll do what I want, and if you don't like it, that's your prerogative as well as either the marker or another player, and take it to the committee, mm. and we'll discuss it as reasonable people. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and I'll I'll cop the consequence of that. I just didn't like being told, no, you cannot do that. Not as if I was an, an opponent in match play. You know, I was just another player in stroke play. And there was, I, I almost wanted to test the system. There was a system in place to resolve disputes. It's well documented in the rules of golf. You know, and there's a committee there for a reason. It's like the one occasion where, very, very unfortunate, where I refused to sign someone's scorecard. And for four hours, I thought, how do I, how do I actually bring this up? And that was a lesson for me, was I shouldn't have waited four hours. Mm. That was a big learning point for me. This guy was late to the tee, 100% late, absolute, no no doubt. And I thought, I know what the penalty is. It's rule 5.3, right? I know what, the, I know what the, the rule is and I know what the penalty is. And I thought I almost want to test the system because it is an, an exception to being late. And one of the exceptions is um, if the committee deems it's actually a reasonable, you know, you save someone's life in a car accident on the way there, the committee could go, no problem, you know, we waive the general penalty. Um, that's one of the exceptions. So I thought I might even test the system here because I'm just going to report the facts to the committee. The committee make, can make a decision, and if they say no problem, no penalty, then his score for that hole will stand. I then spent four hours going, what do I do here? This is really potentially awkward. And at the end, I said, I'm, I did it as nicely as I, I said, I'm sorry, I just can't in good conscience sign your scorecard. Oh, why not? Well, remember 14 hours ago, remember on the first hole, you were late. He goes, oh, and then the the other guy, oh, well, you know, what are you, you know, and then I thought, oh, this is horrible. You know, um, wasn't a Barney, but it was awkward. Mm. I, th I thought I was doing the right thing because he was late. And I know exactly what the penalty is for that. And he did too. And he said at the end, when he parred the hole after the first hole, we walked off the green, he goes, that was a fool. And I'm going, oh, I should have said them, but I didn't. I go, okay, I'll put it down. But 
doesn't mean I'll sign your, scar- your card in four hours' time. I'm not if I'm embarrassed by that or ashamed. That's just something that happened and I learned from it. So what um, is about having so, a, You asked the question about having a barn. So. Yeah, yeah, no, but, uh, you know, it just goes to, you know, the fact that the rules are the rules. So what is the general penalty for when you're late to a tee in a, in a competition? Yeah, so it's a, yeah, it's a two strokes penalty. Two strokes. So, so the 5.3 talks about you don't start early, you don't start late. You're at the tee ready to go at your nominated time. And if you are late, effectively the penalty is disqualification. But one of the exceptions is if you are less than five minutes late, you're not disqualified, but it's a two-stroke penalty. Um, and one of the other exceptions is the committee can assess the actual circumstances which made you late. So he was less than five minutes. It's pretty clear cut as a general penalty. Rather than having a four on that hole, he should have had a six, if, um, pure and simple. If you're playing at a four and your tee-off time is 12.28 and the group in front of you have hit off and they're on the first green, but you're all there and it's 12.26, what should you do? Yeah, so I've actually, we got guidance from uh, Golf Australia on this, is if it is safe to do so, it's okay. You know, we don't want people going, oh, hang on a sec, guys, you can't tee off early, which is the rule, mm. you know. Um, but, you know, as you said, they're on the first green. Let's just go. You know, we will talk about ready golf and speed of play. Imagine standing on the tee for another two and a half minutes because you it's not the time yet. Mm. So the guidance we got from Golf Australia was as long as it is safe to do so and you're all there, go. So your rules uh, efficiency has led you down the path of tournament refereeing. So you've had some experience uh, in the world of uh, tournament ref- professional tournament refereeing, taking Blakey's lead. Um, how was that experience for you? Wonderful. Yeah? Just absolutely wonderful. What a buzz. I mean, my first day was at the Victorian PGA, down at Moona. What a buzz. What an experience. A day I will not forget for a long time. And a big thanks to Blakey for his role in making that happen. I approached, you know, Golf Australia or PGA, said, I'm really, really, really keen on this. I want to get as much experience as I can. And they're probably gone, who's this guy? And I know someone from Golf Australia definitely contacted Blakey and said, who's this guy? And Blakey's given, you know, a bit of a thumbs up and, yeah, he'll be good. He'll be fine. Go for it. And sure enough, I got the gig. And what a wonderful experience. The quality of golf that I saw, the buzz I felt like it was real. I mean, I do a lot of work with Golf Australia, which is all amateur golf. And, yes, there's some incredible golfers. You know, I've done some pretty good events amateur-wise. I've been at the Australian Amateur and, you know, Victorian Amateur and the like. And you know what? They are good golfers. We are talking plus four, plus five golfers who just don't seem like they hit a bad shot. But then to go to that professional event and see the quality of golf, wow. Wow. I mean, in one word, wonderful. I could go with a few others, but it was just a wonderful, incredible experience that I hope I can do for many, many years to come and be at that level and continue to advance. Um, you know, I've got plenty of years ahead of me to do something like that, but it was just a fantastic experience. I just loved it. So sky's the limit in terms of wanting to referee uh, tournament golf? For me, yes, but I guess it just comes down. I think... You know, I remember my very first ever pennant hosting, right, all club-level pennant, and I was level two qualified, and I wanted to do this. So I put my hand up for quite a few, and I remember my very first ever pennant refereeing, I was as nervous as anything. It was almost like as if, please don't anyone call me because I'm still not that sure. I, I did the course. I got a really good score on the exam and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
but geez, now it's real. Like imagine if two guys on the green called me over, I'm going, oh, geez, do I actually really know the rule? Mm. Um, do I, and the last thing I remember someone telling me, the last thing I'm going to do, I've got it here somewhere. The last thing you want to do is, you know, pull this out on the green while the two guys are waiting for you and start flicking through to rule 13 point something on the green, you know. It's the last thing you want to be doing. So I was really, really nervous. But I think you're coming back about sky's the limit, where do I want to go? In anything in life, to get somewhere you need to get out of that comfort zone, you need to be prepared to be vulnerable. And I did all that. I was incredibly vulnerable that day and feeling actually quite anxious. And I remember doing the day, the same club, which I wasn't a member of, same club hosting 12 months later, the difference for me, because I'd actually done quite a few events in that time. And I actually just held them out a few months ago. And now I'm at, a, I think, another level again, so far as compared to two years ago, just before COVID. And uh, I was as nervous as anything. And I remember the last match, you know, and there's 50 people. And, you know, someone makes a part and they're banging their horns on the cast. And there's just, and I'm going, oh my God, I hope they don't call me over. <laughs> I really, that's how I felt. Yeah. Because I'm just not that confident yet. But I know I need to do this. This is something I really want to do. Well, I think uh, anyone that's tried to be, you know, good or learn a new skill has been through that, you know. And I'm not saying I'm good, but, you know, this podcast, hundred this will be, I think, maybe the 190th or 190-somethings episode. But I still remember the day when I stood right here where I'm pointing it and, yeah, this setup wasn't here. There was no recorder. This microphone might have been here. Um I turned it on to start a recording. I had no idea what I was doing, and I just knew—I knew that I had to do something that pushed myself out of, you know, normality, outside of, you know, explored my, you know, creative side, and allowed me to do something which I thought was for good. And uh, so I, I, I get that nervousness and just doing it, and then getting better at it, and trying to and trying to learn about the craft, and uh, still learning, still learning. And I think going and doing my first professional event was another level hmm. because oh, here we sure. now have here we now have people playing for real, playing for money and legitimate money. Hmm. And the consequences of me doing something wrong are real. And then it was the the fact that these guys probably because of that were just more um probably had just that more of an attitude, would have actually fought me back on a ruling had I got it wrong because of the what they were playing for compared to the day before or the week before I was doing an amateur event. And I might have been dealing with an 18-year-old kid who probably would have gone, yeah, whatever, mate, you know, and not – it just wouldn't have been the same um, exchange. Here it was, you know, Peter Lonard was at that first event, as some, a name that someone would know. I don't think he would back down from if he disagreed with something I said. He would probably want to keep the conversation going. And there are other names that I could throw out there mm. who have played a lot of golf yeah. who would who would tell me if they thought I was wrong. So that was me, again, being prepared to be vulnerable and being putting myself in that position to just get that more experience because that's something I want to do. Mm. Yeah, probably the last person you want to have a rules argument with on the course is Peter Lonard, in fairness. Like, he's a he's an impressive beast, uh, still is. Um, <laughs> yes. We used to have Peter down at uh, – he was very good friends uh, – he's very good friends with Sean Summers, who was uh, before Mike Ferroni, my very good friend at Mornington Golf Club, uh, was a pro there for many years. Peter would come down for the Pro-Am that Sean would host every year after the um, Australian Open or the Masters or one of which Peter won and, you know, would come down the day after and play in the Pro-Am. And a few years ago now when he was probably in his playing prime before his PGA Tour days, um, but he was he was a machine, very impressive golfer, great ball striker. He was great to watch, still is. Yeah, interesting. So I'll ask you another question. You know, obviously the other topical question outside of, uh, you know, worldwide 
economies, Australian economy, etc. Um, live golf. Yeah, good mate Blakey who has been mentioned several times. Um, I think that's maybe six or seven times that he's been <laughs> mentioned. Thanks, Blakey. Um, just divide the check in half and send it both to Stuart and myself. Live golf. If uh, the shark came and said, hey, Stuart, I heard you're doing good things in the rural space. We need someone on the team. Are you there? Yeah, um, I think I would be, mm. yes. Okay. Yeah. Just, I mean, it, it, I think where you place it so far as DP or PGA and where you place it on rankings, it's another step mm. forward. Um, and we could have a, another conversation about what's backing it financially and why people are so concerned and why they have such strong opinions. It's very polarising, by the you know, I would think as well. But for me, it would be the opportunity of another lot of experience. Absolutely, I yeah, absolutely, I would. Yeah, yeah, I would just for the experience. I think, I think sometimes you know, I think sport does a really good job of transcending politics, and you know, just we're all together as people. And yeah, absolutely, I would. And so you know, with, I did the obviously with the Australasian PGA Tour, and then they invited me back the next week, and I want to do more and more with them. Yeah, um, I still continue my work with Golf Australia, doing a lot of amateur events. Uh, it's a bit quiet now this time of the year, but hopefully, you know, next summer I'll do more and more with the Australasian PGA Tour. But something like that, if they not, oh yeah, that'd be wonderful. Well, yeah, let's um, you know, we've got some big tournaments back in Australia this summer after being, um, I guess, devoid of the the big major tournaments in Australia. Um, certainly going to be Melbourne based, so you'd have to be. Uh, very hopeful of being able to help out in your capacity as a rules aficionado there? Yeah, in due course, I think I'm very mindful that there's a lot of people ahead of me. Right. And I don't mean in the same level of me. I mean those that are already entrenched in those roles and positions and well-known have been doing this for several years. Uh, Blakey keeps telling me that's probably his ninth mention, keeps telling me that I'm well-positioned age-wise, um, you know, Okay, that's good. I know I'm not 30 or 40 anymore, but I'm not 70 or 65 or 60. So he says I'm in a good position. I hope that's right. Hmm. I would like to think this is the next stage of my life and I have a lot of years still ahead of me um, to be able to, to play a role. So I'm prepared to be patient and, and wait wait for that to happen. Um, so if I do maybe another one or two additional events this summer, great. If it's another three or four, even better. But then hopefully the year after, maybe someone else drops off, another two drop off. I would like to think that I know that I'm going to remain as keen as anybody and still involved. And if Blakey will have me, I'll still be helping him with, you know, videos and questions and the like. I know my interest is still going to be there. Hmm. So that that's going to hold me in good stead. I just need to maybe just wait out my time and, and be patient and wait for those opportunities to present themselves. Uh, where are the best golf courses in the world that you've uh, visited or played, Stuart, in these travels that have taken you all Just, around the planet? Geez, I think we're pretty lucky here, aren't we? Mm, I think. <laughs> oh, geez. We are spoilt for choice. Whether you head down the left-hand side of Melbourne and go down to the Geelong area and beyond, or whether we head down to the Mornington Peninsula, and we haven't even mentioned the Sandbelt. Right. So the Mornington Peninsula and some of the courses I've played down there, I, I love the you – know, if you want to get into specific courses, I love the dunes. I love the Legends course at Moona. Um, some of the public access courses are fantastic. Um, last year we did our golf trip to Van Boogle. And for those in that trip who have travelled and been to Scotland and Ireland, and what, they were saying, this is as good as anywhere. And I'm going, wow, and it's an hour flight away. Um, 
So I think Barn Boogle was a incredible experience. I didn't play very well, but I think that was probably more the course than me. But um, what a wonderful golfing experience. But I think we are so spoiled for choice here. Mm. Um, I have travelled extensively through the United States. Whilst I haven't played a lot, I've travelled extensively through there and I know where those golfing meccas are and I know I've travelled a lot in Arizona and I know there's a lot of incredible golf resort, golf courses there. Um, favourite same city, with favourite city in the States? Oh, jeez. Well, I lived in one, but I don't know if it's my favourite. I certainly have fond memories of that. Um, the city that I've been to the most would be Los Angeles because it's obviously the first port of call for most Australians flying in there, although there are some other... I can go to San Fran and Dallas. And Dallas has been there many, many times. I've got very good friends in Dallas in the state of Texas. Um, I love Phoenix more for the climate and, you know, that Scottsdale area where, again, another Mecca. Um, where else? Did I've you? been to New York a handful of times. I've been to Las Vegas plenty of times just for um, actual work. I've been there for yeah. a few times for holidays, but certainly for work. A lot. I've been to a lot of conventions there. Chicago? I've been, been up to the Chicago? Only twice, but nothing to do with golf, but I've been there. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, yes. uh, <clears throat> unless there's anything else that uh, I think we can pack into you know, just over an hour, I think, you know, we've uncovered your love of golf. We've talked about your uh, professional career and the history and what led you to this, you know, really interesting pathway down into applying that skill, knowledge, discipline into the world of training, being very successful there. A few little tips. Uh, and about how to get into that and what you need to be if you want to do that. And that's, I think investing is on the peak of everyone's mind at the moment. And then we talked about your rules of golf love and uh, how that journey came about. Anything else? Where, where, are you playing, just, where, where are you playing golf at the moment? Sorry, that's what so, I So, yeah, so I'm a member of Gardeners Run, yep. so just out in the eastern suburbs. I was at a, another club where I was on the committee for many years and the captain there. Um, and then I've just moved into a um, to Gardener's Run uh, to play my golf there the last 15, 18 months or so, something like that. And, again, just wanting to help on the committee. I haven't joined the committee there, but I know the captain quite well and I've, you know, I've played with him quite a lot of times and I've helped occasionally him with the rules because I like to help with the rules and he's pretty good on the rules as well. Um, so that's what I'm playing now. I think just uh, – I think sometimes we'll mention his name again. You know, Blake has been a huge help for me in my development and learning and – and, um, you know, my pathway and helping me as much as he has with that. But I think sometimes he and I talk about from a golf rules perspective, from the membership golf club level, we sometimes go, why don't people want to learn the rules more? You know, why don't they want to play by the rules more? And why aren't they interested in learning more? It's like they know enough to get by. And if they really got a curly situation, well, they'll just make do. They'll find some way of within their group. It's sort of, yeah, we don't you know, we don't care or we don't mind or we'll just just do that, you know. We'll find out later whether it's right or wrong. And even then we probably won't, you know, mind anyway, you know. Anyway. So, so how do we arrest that? What you know, what what's your advice to, you know, the 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 foursome that uh one of the foursome that might be listening that might have come across that very situation where, you know, he's been maybe a little uncomfortable with the way that the rules in the group have been adjudicated. You know, how how what would you what advice would you give to people? You know, where where could they start, or what are handy resources? You know, there are some resources that you can have on your person while you are playing golf that can very easily help you. What what, what would you suggest? Yeah, well, the entire rule book is available on the RNA app, so on your phone um, is access to all twenty four rules, committee procedures, uh, the definitions, all seventy four of them, 
Um, so you actually, and if time permits, grab your phone at RNA app. But then, because it's like a lot of things, if you don't know exactly where to look, I mean, I know all the rule numbers. I know if you wanted to ask me about a particular question, I'd know that's rule 9.4. So even if I wasn't quite sure, I'd actually quite quickly get there. Uh, so the app having all the rules, I think, is probably a, a starting point. You know, every club has a committee. And whether they like it or not, one of their responsibilities is to administer competitions. And so you need to, at club level, if you have an issue or a, dis a dispute or need some confusion about a rule, you need to go to the committee. And whether they like it or not, if they want to take their role seriously, they should go and actually find out the answers, contact Golf Australia, contact whatever body, you know, um, um, looks after their, you know, after their, after their area. But what's, um, the, what's the most often broken rule that you've, that you've oh, from your experience? Oh. What a great question. Probably moving your ball in play mm. and not even giving yourself a stroke penalty is probably a common one, mm. I see. Uh, no, probably the most common is advice. Yeah. 10.2, you know. I mean, and, and I think it can almost be uh, unintentional. It's not a deliberate, I'm going to break the rule. It's just, you know, making a comment about a club, asking about a club, asking about something, giving advice because as you make, you know, and you get groups of four, you know, play all the time. Um, they're always trying to probably help each other out. Probably advice. But that's probably an easy one. You know, I think that's probably the most commonly broken rule. Uh, either asking for it or giving it. Stuart, it's been uh, a great insight to get to know you a bit better and to learn a little bit about your story. Uh, thanks for sharing. And uh, as I say, I'll put the links below in the notes where you can get your book. Uh, where you can contact you and um you know i think uh everyone hopefully is a little bit more enlightened on someone who's passionate about the rules um, but also someone who's been very successful in the world of trading markets currency equities stocks all of that sort of thing um you've done a great job of building a very good profile around that and congratulations yeah. to you so thanks for coming on Ross, it's been my pleasure and i've been a great admirer of your passion as well the fact that you run multiple podcasts the amount of energy and time and effort you put into doing this because of that passion and your love of golf. So congratulations on all that you've done and all the time you've spent doing all that. That's been fantastic. So thank you and well done to yourself. Uh, thank you. Small cog in a, in a big wheel and uh, I just love golf and, uh, you know, it took me a while to work out what I was here for and uh, golf's the thing, so uh, we'll just keep doing it. Did I mention I'm going to the 150th Open, by the way? Just oh, continue. fantastic. No, you hadn't mentioned that. Good on you. That's great. <laughs> okay. I'll be seeing you next time and I'll be in Scotland. Uh, so, uh, no, very good. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll see you next time on the My Love of Golf podcast.